0: Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Babakish Rafi. Today is the 4th of July, 2022, and I'm speaking with Ofer Gal, who is Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Sydney. He is the author of The Origins of Modern Science, From Antiquity to the Scientific Revolution. Thank you for joining us, Ofer.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: In your book, You use the Gothic cathedral as a guiding metaphor for the history of science. How does that metaphor work for you?
1: So cathedrals stand there. They're very beautiful. They're very... They seem like they serve their purpose marvelously, right? They really... When we go to a cathedral, we dig it, right? We understand there is God in the cathedral, But it's not because, you know, God put the cathedral there. The cathedral is an outcome of many years of effort. It's important, right? So important that it usually takes more than a century to build, meaning that the people that first thought about it are not there to see it finished. It has no blueprint. They have like this general idea that they want it big and up there and uh, reaching to the sky. But not, le- not, not much more than that. And every generation that builds it encounters new problems in continuing it. And solves it always with what they, this generation, have. Right? History is always a march away from the past. It's not a march towards the future. It's always building a present with what there is in the present or from the past. In the case of cathedrals, these are issues of masonry, of transportation of heavy heavy stones, of uh, reaching stability in buildings that go higher and higher, of connecting the elements in a way that indeed will serve these ideals of beauty and a divine presence, ideals that change through those generations. And they are always served by what's there, not in view of where it will get. And we can tell stories like this about a cathedral. It doesn't seem strange. Another example. You know that there are cathedrals everywhere. Some of the most Marvelous ones are in, in South America. The story why there are there are uh, cathedrals in South America is an excellent story to tell, and it uh, makes perfect sense, right? The Europeans, especially the the Catholics among them, go to South America, think what these guys need here, what we need here, to tell these guys what's the right religion is a the cathedral. They import the cathedral, they put it there. And now there are cathedrals everywhere. But it's not because cathedral is a universal idea. It's got kind of universalized or globalized. You can easily explain to an interlocutor or to a student, look, cathedrals are global, but they're not universal. It's much more difficult, but the cathedral provides some kind of an analogy. It's an attempt to say, look, current science, Is global. There's no doubt, I've seen it, we all noticed it. You can have a conference in Oslo, someone will come from Beijing, another from Cape Town, another from Rio. They'll come to the same place and they'll talk the same language. Both in the narrow sense that they all speak English and in the sense that they'll they'll agree about procedures and arguments and basic assumptions. And if they need to to debate. They know along what lines to debate. That's the most Mm -hmm. global cultural phenomenon, but it ain't universal. There is a story to be told about the export of science and the import of science. The export of those institutions in which science was done, where it started. Science started someplace. It's just this thing like a cathedral. It's just this particular uh, fashion in architecture. It started there because there it had a reasonable place. I mean, sorry, here, even, you know, even about cathedrals, I end up telling kind of this theological story. Cathedral started there because the people there wanted something particular and could do something particular. It's a very small area where cathedrals started. There are reasons why people exported it, maybe Spaniards to South America, and there are reasons why other people imported it. Anglos importing uh, the cathedral to Harlem, right? But it's it has a story, and the story is contingent. It could have been different.
0: Why did you choose to write this book as a textbook?
1: There is a problem in telling history of science. The worst version of this problem, I got once from my tutor who came in a slight state of shock and told me a student told him that this is a this is apparently a course in bad science, in failed science. I can see where the student comes from. We use science as a as a term of adulation right we use it to stamp on things we we appreciate and approve to bits of knowledge we appreciate and approve which means that uh, or suggests that whatever was before was replaced for the better and since you know the beginning of time humans were marching towards us we were just they just didn't get to us, but we were here waiting. And now we are here. I mean, now finally history got to us. How how generous of us. Now history, the point of history, in history that is done well, is to do the opposite, to provide an opportunity for estrangement, using the Brecht's term, right? an opportunity to look at the the mirror and see this guy there and say, who is he, right? Realize that I could have been anything, anything, anyone else. It could have been different. That's the power of history. That's what history does for you.
0: Your book presents the big picture of the history of science, a synthetic view uh, books like this were more common in the past than they have been recently.
1: When I m- made my first steps as a student in the history of science, oh, there were maybe two or three competing stories, big stories. So every claim one made was, in a sense, far against these stories. These were important stories because the, the origin, there, I don't know if really... The, There's never an exact origin. But early heydays, the beginning of the powerful history of science, were in in moments where those histories of science were really needed. So either between the wars in Europe, mainly for Jewish intellectuals who really needed to tell a story of progress, of universality, of mankind, of the human mind and the human soul about a way where we can come together. Uh, uh, histories in Europe, death Between the War, was extremely nationalistic and they were about separation and very much it, I mean it, I don't know if it was completely Jewish dominated but definitely Jews were very, you yeah, know, think of Koyre, Meyerson, the, the, the names that tell half of the story. And in Europe, they needed a story in, uh, in which they could say, here is the European, not the French or the German uh, uh, genius. Here is the European genius, and we're part of it. They needed it, and it was a, a rather glorious, uh, there was something really impressive about this wish to tell such a story and again after the war this time no, no not just for uh, for Jews but after Hiroshima that can be Brits or Americans that need to retell a story of progress of modernity that uh, serves a benevolent venture of modern times as progress after you know six years of Global slaughter, and again after Dresden and Hiroshima and Auschwitz and so on, and, and those were big stories. They were sometimes were very big stories, right? The beginning of science from antiquity till uh, from 1370 till 1800. It was a, every book was like that. If you like the the generation that grew up through the 90s, not the ones that wrote the books in the 90s but the ones that wrote the dissertations in the 90s and then came to work through the last you know the last generation exactly last 25 or so years i mean there was a good reason not to write big books those both in this kind of institutionalization of all humanities if you like but of of this small discipline history of science now there were departments. Department has introductory courses and advanced courses, and it created niches that needed to be filled by expert on this and expert on that. And there was an ideology: stories need to be small, which meant that technically they became in many many orders of magnitude more accurate. I uh, defy you to have a look at Coire or even shaping, right, Galilean studies, or even even more marvelous queries from the closed world to the infinite universe. Small book with a very big name, right? And a very big, very grand claim. He makes his argument based on like two and a half texts. By analogy, Ptolemy made all his great system on the basis of something like 80 observations which were something like 800 years old. Ticho would produce this amount, Ticho Brahe in the late 16th century, would produce this amount of observations and about three orders of magnitude more accurate a night. There is a glory in this modularization and that breaking and each one knows, this guy knows Newton, this guy knows about the Royal Society between 65 and 87, but then they, less and less, can talk to each other, and less and less, there is a point of them talking to each other. The level of professionalization is, is like that, that when you listen, you go to listen to a talk, usually you can't really ask a, you can ask a question, but you cannot, you cannot try to undermine an argument. Usually, the speaker is significantly more advanced, sophisticated, knowledgeable in what she is talking about than you can be. It becomes kind of, you know, so what's the point? Who cares about some academy of leisurely gentlemen in mid-16th century Florence? It's very interesting to talk about academies when... the great story about science is about, on the one hand, university and on the other hand, the Royal Society. It's very interesting, very kind of eye-opening to say, hey, hey, the Royal Society of London was not a new thing. People are trying that for a century already. It's not like some English, the marvel of the English gentleman. This academy and that academy and the gentleman that shaped the Royal Society of London was a German intelligencer, right? A guy that went through Europe and took notes and came and, and established a, an institution built, which is for us now, right, 21st century still, the image of scientific professionalism. It's actually some sort of a build-up from, from a small leisurely gentlemanly or, or even nobility meeting places in mid-16th century Italy. So it's important to notice this, to notice this a particular Italian Academy of Science and tell its story very carefully when it's an argument for or against something. On its own, it's a bit of an antiquarianism. I mean, which is great. You know, I'm a great uh, admirer of those uh, English road shows, antique road shows. It's just amazing, right? Is this guy that knows everything about snuff boxes? Aesthetically, it's re- really pleasing, but humanities, history, history of science need, I think, uh, need to do uh, something which will be dare I say, politically of some significance. And to, to be significant, you need to argue for or against something. To do this job of estrangement. So a snuffbox from the 18th century doesn't estrange anything. Doesn't make you see yourself as disordered.
0: So in your synthetic account, you cover Greek thought, ancient astronomy, medieval learning, including Muslim science the cultural and material conditions preceding the scientific revolution, the astronomy of Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo, the rise of modern anatomy and medicine, and the mechanical worldview of people like Galileo and Descartes. You end your book by analyzing a question that Robert Hooke posed to Isaac Newton about the motion of planets. And you also have a chapter on magic. Why did you include a chapter on magic in a book on the history of science,
1: it's really important. Now, why is the, why put it in a history of science? Why is it an inevitable? First of all, here here is another opportunity to think about a tradition that we are we used to give a term which, in the case of magic, is a pejorative, just as it's the opposite with science, right? We call science to what we believe in. We call magic. And I mean magic not in the sense of uh, uh, you know, the, the, the art of uh, David Copperfield or something like that, who would say, this is here, I, this I just invented. That tells you that he does not pretend to be a magician in, this, in, the, in, the, in the literal sense. He's, uh, he's, he's creating fantasy. This is mar- marvelous art he knows it and he he sort of invites you look at me and you won't be able to see that's not the magician the the real magician would it's you wouldn't you would not it's not just that you can't you you and me as a, a spectators won't be able to figure out how he does it we won't be able he can't even tell us the 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 secret because to be a magician, you need some sort of initiation of ele- elevation. All of those, uh, I can continue to to uh, to uh, give. Uh, uh, maybe I, I'll give one more uh, of these distinctive distinctions between science and magic, uh, which is perhaps the most fundamental one and relates to the idea of the secret, is that. One reason wh- why you can go to a to a university and study a science and there's no place you can study magic, you can be taught, you can be initiated into magic, you cannot study it is because science is about general things, rules of and laws of how science goes about and how... Uh, and how the knowledge, sorry, how the world goes about its way and how to discover knowledge about it. It's it's the, the idea of science, the fun, a fundamental idea of science is general knowledge and knowledge of the general. Well, if the fundamental uh, uh, aspiration of the magician is to something local, particular, uh, uh, to the knowledge of, the particulars of nature, in order to produce a particular effect, which is against against the, the generalities, right? This book is heavy. The magician can make it fly, not not by changing the laws of nature, but against the laws of nature, because he knows a secret. Now, so so here the tradition that we we kind of live. St- Steeped in meat, the tradition of science. And here is a tradition that uh, and this, this, the, the science on its its institution, its place in, in culture and society grew and expanded. And here is another tradition, mm. and a tradition, the same, in the same sense that was having a sets of a cluster of, of ideas, of assumptions, of ways to do things. Which uh, diminished the, this kind of a project of estrangement that you do by showing that science as a history here is a, a, a magic provides like another version of this work on estrangement. The way I'm we can strive to tell science without using the word science is as a as a marker of what we believe, but just as a story of a particular type of knowledge de- developed in particular place, particular time for particular reasons with particular tools, here is something that in the same places, at on in the same times, sometimes for similar reasons with similar aspirations, sometimes with uh, with other, also develops. And these two traditions are in constant contact. Magic is also interesting for me, again, similarly to to medicine, because it's a chance to talk also about the less powerful. Let's call it that way, right? All inquisitors are men, 75 or 80% of magicians are women of witches of women and the inquisitors burn the witch the witch doesn't burn inquisitors but the witch makes the inquisitor right the inquisitor doesn't study the witch as an anthropologist he really uh, he really delves into this type of supposed knowledge in order to uh, to figure it out and in that perp, in that uh, process, uh, in in a sense, tell the witch what, she, what is it she's supposed to believe? If you take someone like the Heinrich Kramer, author of the famous uh, Hammer's witch, Witch's Hammer Maleus Maleficarum, Valpurga, uh, who lived a little later than him, they they didn't meet. They are tied together in a sort of dance where she produces some type of knowledge, some type of of behaviors which terribly excite him. But she probably doesn't have a good story about what is that she believes in. I think Valpuga herself was actually literate, but most witches are not. So they, their their knowledge of tradition is is uh, is uh, limited to the oral. While he reads, right? So he, he tells her to a degree what she's supposed to believe. She needs to uh, to tell it back to him so to stop often to stop the, the, the torture and get get the, a chance to uh, to uh, to be you know to be burned to, which is the end of the torture, not at the beginning. Uh, so, so this is another important reason to look to look at power and its men and women relations and oppression from the point of view of of uh, this knowledge that devel- of knowledge that develops in Europe, exported to the new the new world and to Asia, and, and so on.
0: In another discussion online at the University of Cambridge Press, you briefly mentioned your view of the relationship between history of science and philosophy of science. What is your view of that relationship, and how does this book serve to articulate or advance that relationship?
1: I came from a philosophy background. My questions are usually general, and, but I think you can only answer questions like this with this set of particulars. To say it more, most radically, I think philosophy of science that can carry this name with a pride is a methodological thoughts about writing the history of science. That's what it should, should be and should have been. Let's take a very particular text, paper that I love. I'm talking about Simon Scheffer's uh, Glassworks. For the benefit of those who haven't read it, it's not a long paper in any means. It it tells a very particular episode. Newton performs his optical experiments, comes up with a very uh, ambitious, unique theoretical account of what they mean. What they what do they mean? Right. So he uses prisms and he breaks the light and shows that it uh, it spreads like like a traffic light vertically it separates into particular light particular sorry particular colors what we know is the spectrum and it shows that you can break it again and again it will break always in the same uh, at at the same angle and always remain the same the same uh, color i mean you you get at a certain angle uh, coming out of the prism you get blue you put another prism, it will remain blue, but it will break again. The, the array will break again at the same at the same angle, right? So it retains the angle of refraction and remains the same color. The claim he, I mean, the, the theory comes out related to that. I don't know how much of it he was already divining before. He never says, he says, I looked at it and saw. The, uh, the, the claim is, here is a proof that white light is not a primitive, is not a, the simple, white light is actually a mixture of those colors, and the colored rays are the, the simples of nature, the primitives. And what Professor Scheffer shows, that those experiments are very nice, very beautiful, other people try. And not very succeed. They get other results. And the account of the paper is how Newton changes the question from "were my experiments good enough to support my theory" to the question: "Are you competitor, rival, good enough to produce my experiments which follow my theory?" Schaeffer never, along the the paper, to my memory, says. Here is a philosophical argument here. But this is a very powerful philosophical argument about the relation between truth, very 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 epistemological, deeply epistemological claim is being made about the creation of truth, about this point, the argument which relates to my, obviously, 30 years later, I write a book. I talk about cathedral, but I have those prisms in mind. We take light to be this way because Newton won then. Why did he win then? Because reasons that were relevant at the late 17th, early 18th century. He won then. The winning, the debate that was won then is what we are. He made, Newton made us. Newton, no, it's nonsense. It's, it's metaphysically wrong to think that Newton got figured out what we now know to be true. Newton managed to argue away in very complicated rhetorical, political, social instrumental, experimental, skillful ways to win the argument then. That win of the argument, that's what I read from that paper, that that the way the argument was settled then is what we believe now, not vice versa. It's not that Newton discovered the truth. We've got to look at it and see, here is Newton making the truth. This is a little strong way to put it, but it's I'm putting it in a strong way to show here is a piece of philosophy. What's more, this is as fundamental epistemology and as fundamental metaphysics as I know of. Another debate that was done, again, when I was a student and sort of dissipated, and and the reason, the the hope is that a big synthetic book would maybe uh, bring back to life, is the question, okay, let's remain with those prisms and the light rays. Okay. Newton is in the story. You cannot tell the story of us believing that colored red are primitives without telling Newt- about Newton and his manipulations or his instruments. But, you know, at the end of the day, the, the light also had something to do with it, right? It did break to blue and red, not to orange. There are some colors that you could imagine that are not there. So if a, a Newton would have really wanted to make it stripes... He probably wouldn't have succeeded. Here is the philosophical question. So how do we get to talk about nature in that historical story? This is a philosophical question, right? We have only one science. The science Newton made, how do we let nature get its voice into the story of that historical science Given that all we have to talk to, to talk about nature with is the science that historical science produced, this is a really it's a really difficult what, metaphysical, I don't know, philosophical question. Question that needs what do I mean by philosophical question? Question that needs to be solved by abstract arguments. I mean, you can't you can make an argument like Schaffers by telling a particular episode, a particular story. But analyzing this story, you do need to just do theory. What was, you know, once in the 90s, in English departments, it used to be called theory. And other people call philosophy. That's what I think the philosophy of science can and need to be. What is philosophy of science? The relations between Kramer, Heinrich Kramer and Valpura. Malp- I didn't come up with this idea. This is the master and slave dynamics. It was already someone already put it on the table once. I wish that philosophy of science of our time will deal with in the relation. For example, all all those uh, many many of these terms have sort of dissipated, disappeared. No one says them. Power and knowledge. Can you tell the story of the witch and the inquisitor? without putting in the ethical point that at the end he burns her and she doesn't get to burn him or to even really plead her case? Or is the ethical point just another later story? This is an important philosophical ethical question. There are good reasons here and there. I mean, you you can make a good argument that since we tell the story, and so we always need to learn some lesson so if we forget the fact that it's not just a discussion over a cup of tea but at the end of the trial she gets burnt then then we don't tell a complete story or you can say yeah but if you once you put it in this way you again you, you put the the torture and violent end where the the story is but it's not really We really need to put this aside to realize here is a a knowledge produced in a particular power relation. What is knowledge produced? There are books written according to that exchange between the Inquisitor, written by the Inquisitor, of course, not by the witch, which, which are built on that exchange.
0: What do you hope that students will learn from this textbook?
1: Here's a point which is very important for me. Those decades that I teach, very difficult to get the course to students. But it's an important philosophical question. That what's important in the progress of knowledge are the questions. The answers are rather secondary. You can show the great changes happen, the important changes happen, when the question is changes and To construct, to develop, to formulate a good question, you need the question in no less than a cathedral than the answer. My guy, right? My man, Robert Hooke, takes some ideas from here, some ideas from there, some work that he's done with the instruments, some work that he's done mathematically, he mixes them all together to ask a question that is so fantastically simple. But no one asks. So simple that he thinks he doesn't even realize that he's the first one to ask. He starts arguing about something else when he wants credit. The question is so simple. Why do the the planets orbit? Not why do the planets move? But why do the planets orbit? This is an important, not not simply philosophical, but educational problem. Get it across to the students. This is As simple as it is, first round, first time around, his uh, colleagues say, his employer's colleagues at the Royal Society of London don't understand anything about what he wants. First time around with Newton, who's smarter than most of his colleagues, he also don't understand what what he wants, what Hook is all about. It takes both the ability to build this question, to construct the question, why do the planets bend around the sun? Why don't they just fly to the empty space? And then it takes all Hooke's rather limited rhetorical skill to get it across to, to Newton. Now, Newton go and writes the Principia. It's, it's, a very, it's not that uh, Hooke did all the work. Far from it. He also wanted to write the Principia and didn't, didn't manage but the question is there is nowhere, there's no change without the question. The answers, there are lots of work, lots of skills, but they are not there without the question. So, this way in which uh, questions and answers, hypothetical answers, go, the way they change each other, the way questions change, this is a philosophical question, and so on and so forth. That's what I mean when I say philosophy of science and history of science are integrally tied. You cannot do the one without the end. Every history of science which catches my attention is one that, as I said, is making some kind of a point, some kind of an argument. It's not like you used to think it. So in that sense, it's at least quasi-philosophical, bordering on the philosophical. And a good philosophical argument must do something for me when I go and read Galileo or Descartes or Hooke or Newton must make some difference for me in reading uh, in reading those scientific texts. The point always is to write philosophy of my point, my ambition, to write philosophy of science historically. Namely, tell a story, really tell a story, in the most solid historical way that I know that makes philosophical point. And vice versa, to tell always that every every historical account has some philosophical claim embedded in it.
0: Well, thank you, all for sharing your work and your perspectives with us.
1: You're welcome, Babak
0: for Gall's book is The Origins of Modern Science from Antiquity to the Scientific Revolution, published by Cambridge University Press. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic as well as others at chstm.org.